So the other day at work, we were talking about like words that we don't know. So for example, I'm a little bit older than you. I'm an older millennial. Obviously, you know mm-hmm. I'm older than you. I don't know why I just told you that. But What? <laughs> this is brand new information. So there are some new like hashtags or certain words that any of my coworkers were like, I don't know what this means. And we saw one in an advertising campaign and we were just like, this doesn't make sense. This is obviously geared towards Gen Z. So we were literally just talking through a lot of different ones and we started doing our <laughs> Urban Dictionary word of the day. And so now one of the things we do every morning is share like our Urban Dictionary word <laughs> of the day. <laughs> but we literally had like the longest conversation about the word shooketh. So shooketh. Shooketh. <laughs> Which I know is what like, shooketh means. Of course you do, but, you know, we I'm learned... I'm not Gen Z. Don't you ever say that about me. You're not. You're not Gen Z at all. But you also had no idea what hashtag judicial meant. And I didn't either. Like, what? And it just means, like, I don't know, being, like, wise with your money or whatever. It's it's just really weird. Oh, no, not judicial. Judicious. Hashtag Judicious. Yeah, no, I don't know what that means at all. Super Gen Z one. But anyway, so we were talking about shooketh, and it was like, one person asked, like, what does shooketh mean? And, like, three of us responded. This was all in chat. Three of us responded with, like, something, like, very similar. I was like, to be extremely shook. And, (laughs) I mean, it's true. Yeah. But that is what I do at work. I'm not that old, but there are some things where you really do realize, like, Number one, half the people in the radio, no clue who they are. New actors and stuff that are below the age of 22, no idea who they are. Like, I was sitting in the car the other day bumping to the new Jonas Brothers song, and I was like, this is awesome. I love this, and I'm all about it. But I didn't listen to the Jonas Brothers because that was, like, a boy band after I stopped listening to boy bands. Mm-hmm. So now I've like kind of gone back in life and I'm listening to it. It's like I'm regressing in the age of the music I listen to. But hey, whatever. No, I mean, I you turn on the radio and it's like the newest pop star, Talissa Jones. And you're like, who the hell is this? <laughs> you turn on like, I don't know, you see something about like the new Disney Channel show that's like John and Frankie. And you're like, I don't. Uh, okay. Yeah. Upside Down Over the Moon, starring the hottest new actress, Melissa Diehard. Okay. Yeah, I just right. don't turn on the Disney Channel. I mean, I don't <laughs> even have cable, so me neither. <laughs> but I feel like, I don't know, it's Emmy season. Yes. Um, and with that, I'm just going to introduce us. Hi, everyone. Okay. This is Blood and Wine. I'm Brittany. And I'm Tyler. And I'm an old fart who doesn't know all the cool things. And I accept it. <laughs> and I am clinging to my youth because I know things like yeet. I and see, and I don't even know that one. It's when you throw something. That's stupid. Just say throw. It comes from a vine. I don't know. There's there's always a source. Yeah, it's one of those things that... I don't know where I read this, but it was a post talking about how when you read... You're reading something, and you see a word that you don't understand, but then you see it again, and you're like, oh, oh, it must be a new meme. It's like, 
Oh, and then I told her, yeet, threw her Diet Coke can away and ran. And you're like, what? That doesn't make sense. But then you see it again and you're like, oh, oh, it's a new meme. Okay, that makes sense. It's what the kids are talking about these days. Okay. I just don't read books that say things like that. I never said it was a book. Oh, okay. Well, you said reading. I thought of a book. Again, just showing the age gap here. (laughs) No, I was meaning reading like like tweets. (laughs) Gotcha. Gotcha. Well, we have a new Blood and Wine family member this week. Uh, Her name is Vanessa, and she is a part of our Chardonnay Syndicate. And if you haven't ever listened to the beginning of our episodes before, let me tell you about it. This has to do with Patreon. Obviously, Mm. all of you guys know about our Patreon and that that's where our extra content is. We have murder minis. We have episodes that we're calling Bottle Talk. Those are specifically talking about wine, different wines, how to store your wine, how to open your wine, how to taste your wine. There's a lot of really cool stuff going on in those Bottle Talk and those are for when you need just a little bit of a murder break and maybe want to like up on your wine education Um, because I know I'm learning a lot as we're doing it. So I hope you guys are as well but yes so be sure to hop on over and maybe you want to join our blood and wine family just like vanessa yes vanessa thank you so much for joining the family we're excited to have you and excited for you to check out all of our awesome patreon benefits also make sure to go and subscribe to us on your podcast listening platform of choice we are on spotify apple music Basically, wherever you can find podcasts, you can find us there. So hit that subscribe button, and that's the quickest way for you to get our new episodes that come out every Tuesday. Yes. So I'm going to go ahead and jump right into our topic. This is going to be a really intense episode, and I know we've been bringing you guys like intense after intense after intense, but here's another one. So I had to pick this topic, and I went with Family Annihilation, which... Side note, the word annihilation is probably one of the most difficult ones for me to spell. You should have seen me during my research. Like, (laughs) I couldn't get it. It's like I used to not be able to spell the word millennial. Like, too many N's and L's, and I just don't know where everything goes. Um, Similar problem with annihilation. Family annihilation is just as horrific as it sounds. A familiacide is the type of murder, or possibly a murder-suicide, in which the perpetrator kills multiple close family members in quick succession. Most often, it's children, relatives, spouse, siblings, or parents. In half of the cases, the killer then kills themselves in a murder-suicide. If only the parents are killed, the case may also be referred to as a parricide. And where all members of the family are killed, the crime may be referred to as a family annihilation. And that can be murder-suicide or just killing the whole family, familicide. That can also be referred to as family annihilation. Familiacides were often used as an enhanced punishment back in antiquity. So in ancient China, the nine familial exterminations was the killing of an entire extended family or clan, usually because of treason. Um, Machiavelli advocated for extermination of a previous ruler's family to prevent uprisings in uh, The Prince, which is a book we probably all read either in high school or college. Yep. One of the most difficult books to understand if you are not used to reading very historical, very written, historically language type books. 
I don't know yeah. about you. I had a really hard time getting that oh, one. Oh, no, same. You, like, literally read a couple sentences for 30 minutes and still don't know what the fuck you just read. But. Yeah. I kind of want to go back and read it now because I think, actually, it would still probably confuse the fuck out of me, but I kind of want to read it again. So between 1900 and 2000, there were 909 victims of mass murder in the United States. And the way this is being defined is four victims within a 24-hour period. Of those, more than half occurred within an immediate family. And although the total number of familicide cases are relatively rare, they are the most common form of mass killings. However, statistical data, it's pretty difficult to establish due to reporting discrepancies. Family annihilators are generally, statistically, men in their 30s who are very passive, maybe quiet, they keep to themselves until one moment they just kind of explode. And there's actually a lot that you can read online about family annihilators and what, you know, psychology has taught us brings them to that breaking point. Because one thing that was very disturbing when I was doing my research is these people seem like very normal people. And and that's the case, honestly, for a lot of people who commit murder, you never would have expected they would do it. Yeah. A lot of family annihilators are like that as well. Um, so... In this episode, that's what we're going to cover. And so it's it's really heavy. It's really intense. And yeah, I want to talk about wine now before we get into this, because it's going to really help us get through this episode. Same. So I'm not going to be drinking wine Ooh. this episode. I'm going to be drinking Bon and Viv Spiked Seltzer. It's been a while so. since we've done something other than wine. Yeah, I felt like it was time to just change things up a bit. And also, Spiked Seltzer has exploded this year. It's everywhere. I mean, I I honestly don't think before this summer I had ever heard of Spiked Seltzer, really. I think I heard about it last year, but I don't think I ever tried one. But this year, it's like every summer event. Like, that's what people are bringing. And so I wanted to try some for myself and also look into why it's suddenly exploding. So I did look up an article by Daily 750, and then I also checked out their website, bonandvivspikedseltzer.com. So like I said earlier, especially now, people are drinking hard seltzer more than ever, and people are choosing them above wine, beer, spirits for outdoor summer stuff. The rise in popularity of it has been fueled by this recent trend of choosing more health-conscious drinks and a preference for low-alcohol beverages, especially with millennials. But yeah, like something more to that you can drink on and continue drinking on that's gonna like keep you abuzz, but not gonna get you slizzard right well and i honestly when you started to say it i thought you were gonna say low calorie which is also a part of it as well yeah and it's i mean that's a big part of it being healthier so katen bataglia who's a client manager and works for the beverage alcohol practice area of the nielsen company said that hard seltzers have position themselves at the nexus of convenience and health and hard seltzers are carbonated water-based, ready-to-drink cocktails, so it's kind of grab-and-go. There's no mixing or anything involved. 
and they're made from either malted barley or fermented sugar, it typically only have about 100 calories or less. So comparing that to beers, wine, or cocktails, which can have anywhere from like 100 to 400, or like, let's be real, depending on the cocktail, there are some that are like 2,000, and you're like, oh my god. For a drink, it's it's crazy. But, so, hard seltzers are seen as healthy in that range, and they're also pretty low in alcohol. They generally are like 45 to 6%, and they're gluten-free. So, besides being easy and convenient, they also appeal equally to men and women, whereas beer is generally marketed towards a very heavy male audience. It is, but I will say a lot of beers are also in the four and a half to six percent range. So I do think one of the big appeals, like I was saying, is the lesser amount of calories and having it be more Mm -hmm. of like a cocktail taste than a beer taste. But as far as alcohol level, it's on par with beer. Oh, yeah. But I mean, like the marketing of it is... You know, it's marketed equally to both men and women and seen as appealing to both. And also, in pricing, seltzers are usually cheaper than craft beer and definitely less expensive than a mid-range bottle of wine or spirits. Uh, A 12-pack of White Claw, which is a very popular brand, is around 16 And 12-pack of Bon & Viv, which is what I'm drinking today, is about $14 in most places. So pretty on the affordable side, especially with the health-conscious market. And hard seltzer first hit the market in 2013, so it is a pretty new concept. And it was Bon & Viv spiked seltzer that was the first one. Really? Where did you find yours? I found mine at Walgreens. Interesting. Okay, not where I thought you were going to say you got your drink. No, I I saw it at Walgreens and I was like, ooh, I've heard of White Claw. I've never heard of these. I'm going to get this. And ever since being introduced six years ago, it's been slowly getting more of the market. Yeah, which is why it's like booming right now. Yeah. Bon and Viv in particular was started by CEO Nick Shields, who's a fifth generation brewer. So brewing has been in his blood for a long time. And he always knew he would eventually return to the family business of brewing but he wanted to do something different. He didn't want to just make another great beer or whatever. He wanted to make a new kind of beverage that combined the disciplines of brewing, winemaking, also through natural flavors. And after like a hundred tries, he created the recipe for Bon and Viv Spike Seltzer. And today I have four cans that I'm going to try. And these are like 12 ounce cans and they are 90 calories each zero sugar, and I have grapefruit, pear elderflower, cranberry, and clementine hibiscus. I cannot wait to hear how that pear elderflower is, because mm-hmm. one of my favorite drinks is whatever the drink is where it's basically champagne with some elderflower liqueur. Oh. It's amazing. Also, an elderflower mimosa is also, like, way up there on one of my fave things, so... Mm-hmm. Those flavors are different. I was honestly expecting you to say things like lemon, lime, orange. So I like yeah. that these are a little bit more specialized. They they do really feel like cocktails. Yeah. I mean, I think that's one, another reason why they're big. Because like malted 
beverages have always been a thing. I mean, when I was in like high school, college, like Smirnoff Ice and other like sweet, yes, you know, Mike's Hard Lemonade, things like that popular, but I think nowadays, especially with how much sugar is in those, how like unhealthy they're seen, something like this that still gives you that fresh like taste and gives you a little alcohol is seen as really appealing. It's also, I think, part of the reason why like one of the drinks that's growing in popularity nowadays is like vodka soda, which has always Definitely. been a thing. But I feel like nowadays it's like a go-to drink for a lot of people. Definitely. So what's the first one you're going to try? Well, I think you're most excited to hear about the pear elderflower. I am. (laughs) I think I'll start off with that one. And then I guess throughout the episode, when I'm ready, I'll weirdly interrupt our cases to give us... You know what? Honestly, it'll probably be nice. It'll be a little, little murder break. Little murder break for a new flavor update. Yes. All right. And these are those tall, skinny cans. Kind of looks like a like an energy drink can. I love that it has a mermaid on it. Just makes me really yeah, happy. The I love the logo because it's like these two mermaids. It's very symmetrical. And then each different flavor is a different color. And above the little mermaid trident, you can see it has, like on this one, it has two pears and an elderflower. Yeah, I like it. We pour it into my glass. I'm glad you're drinking it out of a glass, even though you don't have to necessarily. I mean, you know, I gotta be fancy. I also don't know how big these glasses are. Oh, they are 12 ounces, is what I just (laughs) discovered. (laughs) What kind of glass are you using? Just like my regular cups. Just a drinking glass. It literally looks like sparkling water. Yeah, it looks like water. It smells really good. It smells like, I mean, pear and elderflower. (laughs) Okay, so tell me about your wine quickly, because I want to drink this. Yes. So, okay, so I also did something a little bit different. However, mine is still a wine. Um, But for this episode, I am doing, and sorry, here comes a lot of Italian words. I am doing the Medici Ermente Lambrusco Reggiano Rosa Dolce Fizzante from Emilia Romangia, Italy. I probably said a lot of those words wrong, but you know what? I tried my best. But basically, this is the Lambrusco Reggiano. And Lambrusco is a little bit different. So I used Wikipedia for basically all of this information. But Lambrusco is the name that's given to both an Italian red wine grape and the wine that's made from that grape. The grapes and the wines originate from four different zones in this Emilia Romagna area in Italy, and one in Lombardy, another region. So the grape has a long winemaking history with some archaeological evidence that actually indicated that the Etruscans cultivated this vine. So that means it's literally one of the oldest vines in the world. So in Roman times, the Lambrusco was highly valued for its productivity and high yields. This grape grew very easily. It was all over the place. And the most highly rated wines from the Lambrusco grape are the frothy Fizzante, which is a slightly sparkling red wine that it's designed to be drunk very young and from one of the eight Lambrusco DOC regions. Today, there are various levels of dryness and sweetness, including secco, which is bone dry to dry, 
amabile, which is off-dry and sweet, and dolce, which is very sweet. And the one I got is a dolce. It's a rosso dolce. So I didn't notice that when I bought it, but when I did my research, I was like, oh, this is a very sweet one. Um... Sweet Lambrusco actually became really popular in the United States in the late 70s and 80s, and it reached Really? Yeah, it reached a high of over 13 million cases exported in the country in 1985. So people were all about it. Um Really? See, I only know about Lambrusco because in college at a restaurant I worked at, they made a house sangria that used the Riuniti Lambrusco as a base. Well, I didn't realize that, and and this is kind of a duh moment, but I didn't realize that it could vary from very dry to sweet, but champagne does as well. Most sparkling wines range from fruit to sweet. I mean, it's a pretty normal thing, but I was first introduced to Lambrusco on my 26th birthday. So one of my really good friends took me out to dinner at an Italian restaurant and she loves Lambrusco. And she's like, have you ever had this? I was like, no, what is it? And she's like, well, it's a sparkling red. And I'm like, okay, well, I definitely want to give this a try. So Lambrusco is noted for its high acidity and berry flavors. And many of the Lambrusco wines now exported to the United States do include a blend of Lambruscos from a lot of different DOCs. And This is similar to why you don't really see years on champagne or sparkling wines, because a lot of the times they're putting together a lot of different vintages. So grapes from a lot of different years go into one bucket Mm -hmm. to create the bottles. So that's why this one doesn't have a year. Lambrusco is rarely made in a champagne style. So after the primary fermentation of a wine and the bottling in champagne a second alcoholic fermentation occurs inside the bottle. This second fermentation is induced by adding several grams of yeast and rock sugar into the bottle. And a lot of brands have their own special recipe, but that second fermentation is where the bubbles come from. However, Lambrusco is typically made using the Charma process. And this process, the second fermentation is conducted in a stainless steel tank And it's been pressurized, and they've also added sugar and yeast. So instead of this happening after it's bottled, it's a second fermentation before it's bottled. Huh. So the one that I'm going to try, the Reggiano Lambrusco, it's a bargain at Trader Joe's. It's $5. And it's, again, one of their very highly rated finds at Trader Joe's. Like I mentioned, with this being a Dolce, It's going to be on the fruitier side, but it does have a drier finish. It's bold, zesty, and fruity with some pleasant aromas and a very full mouth feel. Because, again, it's a red wine. It's not a sparkling wine. It is a red wine with fizz. So you do serve it in a regular wine glass, not a champagne flute. You also do serve it chilled. So um, more like, like you would a sparkling wine, but just... Wanted to note, it's not technically a sparkling wine. It's a red. So I'm going to open this. It's going to be a little bit longer of a process. I'm unscrewing the thing, but I don't need an opener for this one. True. I'm excited. I I think Lambrusco... Ooh, look at that pop. I think Lambrusco... The one I had made a great sangria. I mean, it was a cheaper, sweeter, but 
I think if for a fizzy sangria, it's the perfect wine. Absolutely. I mean, look at this. Beautiful and dark that is. Yeah. It doesn't smell sweet. Now, granted, I know you can't really smell sweet, but you kind of can. But yeah, I'm really excited to try this. All right. Well, let's both uh, cheers and try our yeah. different. I like how we both ended up with something with bubbles, by the I way. I know. I'm like, we're both <laughs> going sparkly. Um, And I guess I'm going to cheers by hitting the empty can against my glass, so... It'll be nothing, but here we go. All right. Cheers. Cheers. Oh, this is... Refreshing is the only word I can think of. It's so light. I mean, it's water. um, Yeah. But the essence of the pear and the elderflower, I mean, it's definitely in there. It definitely has that fruity, floral, but not sweet. Um... And you don't get, I was worried you'd get that malty flavor that some malted liquor beverages have. Yeah, and that's a weird flavor when you taste that malt. Yeah, but no, I mean, it's not as sharp as you might expect from like a LaCroix. Right. They have that very sharp acidic. It's not that strong. It's a very smooth, hydrating, I'm a fan. It's like a tame bubble. Yeah. This one is really good, and I know that surprises you because I said it is a sweeter one, but when I smell it, it smells like a red wine. Like, it really just smells like red wine. You've got the fruity aromas, just like that wine smell that I know, you know what I mean? Like, every wine Mm -hmm. has, like, a wine smell. But when you taste it, it's definitely fruity. It's definitely sweet. But because of the bubbles and the way those bubbles are on your tongue... It's a very different type of sweetness than, like, a sweet red. Mm-hmm. It's something that is very enjoyable. Also, I mean, it, it reminds me a lot of, like, a mimosa. So you know how mimosas are sweet? But I don't think of, like, oh, God, this is so sweet when I'm drinking a mimosa because I'm wanting a mimosa. Anyway, yeah. it is a heavy mouthfeel, and it does have a rather quick finish, but I can see how... This is something that's been around for a really long time. Very easy drinking. Don't necessarily need food with it at all. This is a really good red wine option for hot summer days. That's my tagline right now for everything I'm drinking. Great by the pool. (laughs) It really is. (laughs) Maybe it just tells you how much I love being by the pool. It's true. I've I've not pooled as much as I have this summer in my entire life. Same. Because I have a great pool at my complex the first time. All right, before I jump into my case, I want to remind y'all about First Leaf. So First Leaf is a wine subscription service, and it is awesome. So with First Leaf, you take a quiz so they can see what kind of wines you like, what are your favorite flavors, and they'll send you an intro box of six wines based on your results. And it'll be full of wines that you might not have ever thought to pick up, but If you don't want this intro box, then you can also pick from a bunch of other pre-selected boxes of six different wines based on however you're feeling that day. So if you want to get the California Whites, boom, grab that. If you want to get the Tuscan Reds, boom, grab that. Yes. And one thing that makes First Leaf's membership benefits amazing is that each box you order, there are six bottles of wine. And no matter what bottles of wine you pick, they're $15 a piece. So 
The wines, if you were to buy them individually, could range from 15 to 30 bucks. So getting them all at that $15 rate is really, really good. And we are so excited to be partnering with First Leaf. And for you guys, we've got something special. If you go to our specific link and use our code, you're going to get free shipping for an entire year. And that's for however many cases you order. It could just be your monthly shipments. It could be multiples. You can go in and order extra ones. But if you visit page.firstleaf.club slash blood and wine and enter the code blood and wine, all one word at checkout, you'll get free shipping for a year. And you have to make sure to use that link and that code to be able to get that offer. And if that does sound like quite a bit to remember, no worries. Hop on over to our Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter. You can click on our link tree. You'll see a button that says First Leaf Partnership. Click on that. It will take you to the page. And then just remember to type in blood and wine in the promo box at checkout. Don't miss this offer. It's amazing. Free shipping? Like, that's huge. We've talked before about how expensive shipping wine can be when you order it. So knowing that you don't Mm -hmm. even have to worry, like, amazing. Absolutely. And also, the wines are really good. But even if you don't like a wine you're given, if you just let First Leaf know, they'll replace it for you. Yes, and Ty and I both have a box coming to us soon, so we're going to be featuring some of the wines that we're tasting on First Leaf, and if you hear something that we talk about and you really want to try it, you can go in, get your intro box, and then you can go in and select more wines, fill up another box, and try the ones that we're trying. So definitely worth checking out. Thanks to First Leaf for this partnership. We're really excited and love it. Absolutely. Well, with that, we have our super messed up topic. We have, I guess I can't even say our wine. You have your wine. I have my Vaughn and Viv's. Yes. I'm going to jump into my case. All right. So my case is the case of the Bain family murders. And the sources that I used were Upclosed, Murderpedia, Wikipedia, the Sun and Crime.co.nz, so Crimeco New Zealand. I was about to ask if this was a New Zealand a, one. Yep. So Robin Bain and Margaret Cullen were married in 1969 in Dunedin, New Zealand, and they had four children: David, who was born in 72; Arawa, who was born in 74. I love that name. That's a really fun name. Same. Laniette who was born in 76, and then Stephen, who was born in 1980, who was the baby. So in June of 1994, the family is at their house, and this house is old and some would call semi-derelict. At this time, Robin and Margaret were estranged. Robin was initially sleeping in the back of his van at the school where he was the principal, but more recently, he was actually sleeping in the schoolhouse three nights a week. So they're, wow. yeah. they're, their marriage is being held together by, like, some old gum, basically. Yeah, some old gum that has no more stick to it. He would return to the family home on weekends, but he slept in a caravan in the back garden. David, their oldest son, was studying music and classes at Otago University and had a part-time job delivering morning newspapers. Arawa was attending a teacher's training college, and Stephen was in high school. 
Laniette, their other daughter, had a part-time job in Dunedin and lived away from home, but she had returned to the family home on the evening of Sunday, June 19th, to attend a family meeting. Sounds like they're going to talk about something serious, like like me and your dad are getting a divorce. Sounds like it, but unfortunately, it wasn't ever really known what the family meeting was about. Mm. Because on the morning of June 20th, 1994, David Bain, the eldest son, called 111 at 7.09 a.m. in a distressed state and told the operator, They're all dead. They're all dead. Oh my god. I feel like you always do the cases where there's someone who calls and it's like, they're all dead. Every single one of them, they're dead. Yeah, I definitely did get flashbacks to uh, Richard Speck and the nurses' dormitory murders in Chicago. Yeah, that was your most recent, they're all dead, they're all dead. So when police arrived, they saw David's shadow hovering in the window of his bedroom, but nothing could prepare them for what they found inside. Each family member was dead from a gunshot wound in a different room. And Stephen, who was 14, he was the youngest, had also been partly strangled. Forensic experts deemed that he'd fought for his life, and that the marks on his body hinted at signs of a struggle. Eerily, there was a message that was typed out on the screen of the family's computer, and it read, Sorry, you are the only one who deserved to stay. That's really eerie. Yeah. Of the family of six, David was the only one alive. And four days later, David Bain was charged with five counts of murder. Of course they charged him with murder. It's one of those things where, obviously, if one person survives, then they're the main suspect. But, Mm -hmm. oh my god. Yeah. His trial lasted three weeks and took place in Dunedin High Court in May of 1995. And the prosecution's case was as follows. So they said, David wakes up around 5 a.m., gets dressed, and goes to his wardrobe and pulls out his twenty-two rifle. He unlocks the trigger guard, attaches the silencer, and loads the ten-round magazine. He takes a pair of white gloves from a drawer and puts them on. He wears a pair of his mother's glasses because his are being repaired. He goes into his sister, Laniette's room, which is the study, where he shoots her twice in the head as she lies sleeping. He goes into his mother's room and shoots her in the forehead. In the room of his mother's, he finds Stephen asleep. He puts the rifle to his head, but Stephen wakes and pushes it away as it goes off. There's a struggle with Stephen bleeding from a scalp wound as he fights for his life. David twists Stephen's t-shirt to strangle him, and as he lies on the floor gasping, David finishes him off with a bullet to the head. During the struggle, David's glasses have fallen off. He turns on the light and picks them up, leaving one of the lenses on the floor, and carries them back to his bedroom and places them on his chair. He goes downstairs, where his sister, Arawa, has heard the shots and is praying for help. She is kneeling as David enters the room, and he shoots, but misses as he can't see without his glasses. He shoots again, and this time, the bullet penetrates Arawa's forehead, killing her. 
He goes back upstairs where he hears Laniette gurgling, and he shoots her again in the top of the head. David throws his bloodied clothing into the washing machine and turns it on. David's father, Robin, is still asleep in the caravan. David puts on a fresh set of clothes and goes out with his dog, Casey, to do his Otago Daily Times paper run. When he returns home, he goes into the lounge and turns the computer on. He types in the suicide message, ostensibly from his father, to him, saying, Sorry, you are the only one who deserved to stay. David then hides behind the curtain with the rifle and waits for his father to come in to pray, a daily morning ritual. Robin enters the room and kneels on the other side of the curtains. David shoots his father in the head, and leaving the rifle beside his body, David calls 111. So that's their story? That was the prosecution's story. The defense submitted that Robin Bain killed the other family members, typed the message, and then shot himself while David was out on his paper round. Little in the way of motive, though, was presented for Robin. In a formal statement, Dean Caudill, who was a friend of Laniette, had told police that Laniette had confided in him that her father had been having an incestuous relationship with her, oh. and that she was planning to blow the whistle that weekend. But before she was able to do so, she and her family had been killed. But Coddle had failed to show up at court when called, and when he did turn up, Justice Williamson found him unreliable as a witness and ruled against admission of his testimony. So the jury never heard that. And the defense instead submitted that Robin was a proud schoolteacher who had been rejected by his family and snapped after months of pressure. Interesting. So it very well could have been that he found out she was going to tell people. And so instead of facing that reality, he just decided to kill his entire family, except for one of his sons. Yeah. Which is another form of, I guess, what they got where he just snapped. I just, I hate that that yeah. potentially crucial detail didn't get to come out. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And I, while I don't necessarily see anything incorrect about what they were able to, just that he snapped after months of pressure, because, I mean, it obviously sounds like he is not living well. I mean, he's staying at the school to sleep three days a week. Right. You know, when he does get to sleep at home, it's in the backyard. But it just doesn't answer enough questions, I feel. No. David Bain testified that after his morning paper run, he entered the house without turning on the lights and went downstairs to the bathroom where he washed his hands, which were covered with black newsprint, and put some clothes in the washing machine. Bain said that he noticed bullets and the trigger lock of his rifle on the floor of his bedroom, and he went back upstairs and turned on the light. It was there that he found his mother dead in her room. He heard Laniette gurgling and found his father dead in the lounge. At 7.09 a.m., he rang the emergency number in great distress. So his side of the story is that he just came home didn't turn on lights, you know, it's early in the morning, he's not going to turn on lights in case everyone's asleep, whatever. Yeah. Washes up, does throw clothes in the laundry, so that explains why there were cl his fresh his clothes going in the laundry mm -hmm. when police arrived and stuff. 
and then went to check on everyone, and that's when he called 911. Or, well, 111, because it's New Zealand. That's their equivalent of 911. Yeah. At the end of the trial, the jury found him guilty on five counts of murder, and he was sentenced to life in prison on June 21st of 1995, a year and a day after the murders. You know, this really is, sounds like a he said, she said, there's not really a witness to any of this. Yeah. Like, basically, he's saying he found his family like that. Prosecutors are like, no, there's no way you totally did this. And this is why. And it's just like how you can look at the same evidence two different ways. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So Justice Williamson, who was the judge in the case, told him that he would remain in prison for a minimum of 16 years before parole could be considered. He said this minimum period would not take the year that he had already spent in prison into account. Wow, so time served didn't... that that wasn't a thing. Not in this case. So then, fast forward a little bit. So Joe Karam, who is a former rugby player for All Black, which is the New Zealand national rugby team... Mm -hmm felt that something was wrong with this case, and he spearheaded a lengthy campaign to have Bane's convictions overturned. So he's just a complete outsider, doesn't know Bane or anything. He just heard about this case and was like, no, I'm going to use my position to make this right. So this case was the biggest case in the country. New Zealand is a pretty small country that has a very low rate of violent crime. Yeah. So an entire family just being slaughtered like this. I mean, this was the news story for weeks. I mean, every day during the trial, this was the number one news story on the news. I knew New Zealand was pretty nonviolent. Like, there are very few crimes I've ever heard about coming coming out of that area. So I can see why, you know, it's not very big. This is national news. Everyone knows. I mean, we in America knew about it, so it was world news. Yeah. So Karam visited Bain in prison over 200 times and actually wrote four books on the case. Oh my gosh. Karam, Karam stated in his books that David's innocence is the only possible conclusion and that he was totally innocent. Karam was subsequently described in some media as a freedom fighter. The first application for an appeal was made to the New Zealand Court of Appeal in 1995, principally on whether the trial judge had erred in refusing to commit Cottle's testimony, which he was the one who had the testimony about the possible incestuous rape between the father and Laniette. The court refused to hear the appeal on the grounds that the Crown case appeared very strong and the defense theory not at all plausible. After multiple appeals, the court was ultimately not persuaded that there had been a miscarriage of justice, and the appeal was dismissed on December 15, 2003. In March of 2007, Bain's legal team, which included Karam, traveled to London to lay out nine arguments before the Privy Council as to why his convictions should be quashed. Which, I knew that New Zealand, I mean, used to be British territory. Right. And, like, to this day still has relationships with England. I mean, they still, like, the Queen 
of England is still the Queen of New Zealand. I didn't know in the judicial system, though, that they were connected to this degree. I didn't know the Queen of England was the Queen of New Zealand. She's the Queen of Canada, New Zealand, Australia. She's still... Yeah. Canada? Mm Mm-hmm. Really? I didn't know that. I thought it was like the Justin Thoreau guy. That's not his name. That's the actor. Well, I mean, he's (laughs) Justin Trudeau. There we go. He's the... um, I mean, he's the Prime Minister. So the Queen, like, in Canada is literally like... And she's the queen. She she doesn't well. It's similar make any to decisions. how there's a prime minister in England. I just didn't know yeah. that it was like the queen, and then like all these prime ministers under her all over the world. Same. I will say I wouldn't even necessarily say the prime ministers are under her. They're kind of like beside her, oh. and she's like doing her thing. I think it's one of those that like technically she does have the power to do things, but realistically the prime minister makes those decisions you know and she like is in the background given a thumbs up because i think like for example the queen technically has to say yes to the united kingdom going to war however the prime minister is the one who says yes and it would be a situation where like if the queen was like no then that would be, like, a legal reason to dispose of the queen and the monarchy kind of thing. So, to be- basically, the queen doesn't... Like, the queen is more of a figurehead rather than someone with actual power in that way. Honestly, I want to find, like, the British history for dummies... Because there are so, and not necessarily history, because I know a lot of historical things, but like the way that their government works, it's not something, you know, it doesn't affect me on a day-to-day basis for the most part, unless it comes to like world Mm -hmm. governments and how everything actually affects everything. But anyway, what I'm saying is I'd like to read up on it because there are a lot of things I don't know. Like literally the fact that she's the Queen of Canada and New Zealand had no idea. So if anyone, listeners, if y'all have any recommendations for like some type of resource, some book or whatever that you'd recommend for that type of information, seriously, let me know. Send us an email. Also, I'm pretty confident that's how it works. To any of our UK listeners or any of our listeners in Commonwealth countries, if I got that wrong, please let me know. Yeah, seriously. But I think that's how it is. We would love, I mean, I am all about, if I say something wrong, I would love someone to tell me that I said it wrong. Literally, just correct the shit out of us. <laughs> we want you to return our podcast like it's a graded term paper with just red marks. No, mispronounce this. No, I mean, don't. Actually, but yeah, like, do. you know, you can, you can if you feel so compelled, but know that we're not professionals, so there's going to be True. some red marks, and we accept that. <laughs> yes. So his legal team brought these nine arguments to the Privy Council, and two of these nine points concerned Robin's mental state and possible motive. The other seven points concerned questions about particular pieces of evidence. The Privy Council concluded that, in the opinion of the board, the fresh evidence adduced in relation to the nine points taken together, compels the conclusion that a substantial miscarriage of justice has actually occurred in this place, and the Privy Council quashed Bain's convictions and ordered a retrial. Wait, what? 
Can you like put that in layman's yeah. terms? Because I'm not I know. It a was lawyer. A lot of, <laughs> yeah, it was a lot of legal language. Basically, they reviewed the evidence that his legal team had submitted and agreed that, yeah, there had been a miscarriage of justice and there needed to be a retrial. Yes. So the jury for the retrial was sworn in on March 6th of 2009. David Bain pleaded not guilty to the five murder charges, and the prosecution and defense made their opening statements. Crown Prosecutor Robin Bates told the jury that all the evidence showed that David Bain had killed his family, describing the evidence as circumstantial but strong. But it's circumstantial. Like, literally. Like, there's literally nothing to say he did it. It can be strong circumstantial, but... To me, that was one of the biggest lessons that we learned from Jackie, is that no matter how strong circumstantial evidence is, it's never going to be enough until you have that proof. Yeah, it's circumstantial. And for like a super like older millennial example of circumstantial evidence, also, sidebar, this is a spoiler for Friends, but I think it's an easy pop culture example is when Rachel gets pregnant and they're trying to figure out who the father is and there's a sweater and Phoebe's like, I know who the father is. I know who this belongs to. I'm going to go give it back to him. And she goes to give it back to Tag, Rachel's ex-boyfriend. And when she hands it over, she's like, I think you left your sweater. And he's like, what, this sweater? And he's actually wearing it. He like opens his jacket. So he had the exact sweater. Her evidence was very circumstantial. It was valid. He had that sweater, but it was actually Ross's because he had the same sweater. So, like, yes, I totally get we're going from murder to friends, but it's an example of how easily something could be circumstantial. I also, now, thinking murder and friends, have just a very clear image of Ross on the stand saying, We were on a break! (laughs) Which, very confusing mentally. Absolutely. But, yeah, circumstantial evidence It's circumstantial for a reason. There's a reason it's not known as hard evidence. But he would go on to say that the Crown case would show that the father, Robin Bain, was not the killer. He laid out the case against David, describing graphically what the police found at the scene, and how this was consistent with David killing each of his family members in turn. David had called 111 at about 7.10 a.m., And when police arrived at 7.30, they found him hysterical in his room, wailing, They are all dead. His brother Stephen had clearly put up a struggle while bleeding profusely from an initial glancing scalp wound. And then Stephen was strangled with a t-shirt, then killed by another gunshot. Bates said that David had injuries consistent with this struggle and had Stephen's blood on his clothes. Okay. So yeah, he's in his bedroom hysterical because he literally just found his entire family slaughtered. Right? Like, I don't think that is evidence of guilt. His brother's blood is on him. Yeah, he found his brother dead. Like, I feel are so easily explained away with normal behavior. Not even like a, well, possibly this happened with normal Mm -hmm. reactions to trauma. Yeah. To me, the only thing that is suspicious of this is that he clearly put a load of laundry in when he had gotten home, 
after they'd been killed. He explained it that, you know, when he got home, he didn't turn on the lights. He went to, like, throw his work clothes from delivering newspapers. And I'm like, totally get it. It's like the middle of the summer. Just kidding. It's the Southern Hemisphere. It's the middle of winter. It's New Zealand. I don't know how hot it is in June there. But so that I'm like, hmm, that's weird. It is but suspicious. I also could see it. But like your explanation doesn't send off any like red flags, just some yellow ones. But them latching on to like, he was hysterical. His but his brother's blood was on his clothing. I'm like, yeah, I assume everyone's blood was on his clothing. He found his family murdered. Yep, exactly. Bates also latched on to the fact that a lens from the glasses David was wearing was found on the floor of Stephen's room, and that the frame and the other lens were found in David David's room, which shows that in that room, one of the lenses fell out. Which you would think for a lens to fall out, there would have to be some type of struggle. Yeah. So that, I'm like, okay, that right there, questionable, does not prove anything. More questionable than his hysteria. Yeah. It also could have been, I don't know, the lens had fallen out the other day, and he'd put the the glasses in the room the night before. I don't know. David's bloody gloves were found in Stephen's room, and Bates said he must have had to remove them to deal with the rifle misfeeding or jamming on a bullet. And according to Bates, Robin would have had no reason to wear gloves if he intended to commit suicide. Which, yes, I don't think that just because the fact that gloves were found that were David's in his own house. Like, yeah, but maybe he did wear gloves. To me, their argument... It's weak. It's... I mean, it's circumstantial, and it can be explained away. And it's assumption-based. They are making a lot of assumptions to put together this reasoning. Also, David had told police that he heard his sister, Laniel, gurgling, which Bates said meant that he was present between her second gunshot wound and the final shot to her head, which killed her, which... To me, that is the first thing that I'm like, okay, I don't know how to explain that one. Yeah. Unless, I mean, we've talked about how people getting shot in the head and surviving, so unless she was shot in the head and survived for 10 minutes Mm -hmm. and was gurgling because she was shot in the head, I don't know. Yeah. Um, It's definitely a possibility. His other sister, Arawa, and his mother had been both killed by a shot to the head, and Robin was found in the lounge, lying on his side between a coffee table and a beanbag, dead from a single shot to the head. Next to him was the twenty-two caliber rifle, but his fingerprints were not found on it. So, I will say that does look suspicious if his fingerprints aren't on the rifle, and also... Mm-hmm. I'm wondering about, like, the angle of the bullet wound in his head. Like, could it have been self-inflicted? That's a very crucial piece of evidence. Did they, do you know if they had that evidence? Like, did did they measure that? They had looked into it, and it was one of those that it was, like, technically possible that it could have been either. Okay. Um, I mean, I assumed and hoped they looked into something like that. Yeah. Also, concerning the gun, though, both the rifle's trigger lock and its key were found in David's bedroom, which to me is not that crazy because that's where the gun is from. So yeah, the key is going to be in the bedroom. Like if if dad had gone to get the gun from his son's closet, why would he take the key with 
him afterward. Like, yeah, it's going to be in the bedroom. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Bates did say that the state of the laundry was consistent with David trying to destroy evidence, especially the green jersey that he'd worn during the killings, which... To me, I'm like, okay, but what does that mean? I know. I'm like, like was it splotted with bleach? As in, he, like, dumped bleach yeah. in the wash? Because then, yeah, that would be pretty... Because you don't bleach something that's a color, so that'd be pretty alarming. Yeah. But if it's just if being it's just washed like normally... Detergent, yeah. Yeah, no. Bates argued that doing his paper round was meant to provide David with an alibi, oh. and he had been sure to be seen along his route. Because thing is, during... The time of the killings, David was seen on the other side of town, delivering papers. And he's saying, like, he did that on purpose as an alibi. And it's like, well... Or he was doing that. uh, Yeah. Evidence was also presented of a conversation David had had with a friend six days before the murders, when he told her that he had a feeling something horrible would happen. And after the killings, he told her that... That must have been what he told her about before. And I'm like, one, telling your friend, I just feel like something bad's gonna happen, is not a confession of, I'm about to murder my family. No, it's not. Um, And also, if you told your friend, like, I just feel like something bad's gonna happen, and then your whole family got murdered, yeah, you might tell them, be like, I think that's what I meant. Like, that, that, to me, that conversation's not suspicious. No. Because sometimes you just like, feel like something bad's gonna happen. Well, and It doesn't also, mean you're the one that's gonna do the bad thing that's about to happen. Well, and also, he's saying, I feel like something bad's about to happen, and... His parents are going through, like, like a divorce. His parents are going through probably a divorce. There's a family meeting on the calendar for Sunday night. Like, I'm like, yeah. Safe assumption. <laughs> okay, I think this is a fine time to take... A hot second for, to be a murder break and talk about the Bon and Viv seltzer I just drank. So first off, um, I just finished the second one because I had already opened the cranberry one and forgot to tell y'all. But just drank the cranberry one. It was very good. Very flavorful. And now I'm moving on to the clementine hibiscus. Ooh, this one sounds really like, good. Yeah. And I feel like grapefruit is a good one to end on. So, yes, this it will is be. number three. All right. Oh, it smells, I mean, like a clementine. So the cranberry one, would you would you equate that to like a vodka cran? Not necessarily, because it... Like vodka, or, or like a vodka soda would, with I a would, splash of cran. I would call it a vodka soda with a splash of cran if you used real cranberry juice. Like, not ocean spray, not even the 100% juice ocean spray, but I mean, like, the real cranberry juice that you get in a glass bottle that's, like, tart as shit and almost undrinkable yeah. and, like, medicinal, that. But it, but but it like, was good. Because it's just a couple, like, a splash, it has that cranberry flavor without the sweetness. Nice. The, the cranberry one is by far my favorite one so far. Oh. And let me, let me sip on the, uh, the mandarin hibiscus. I thought it was Clementine Hibiscus. It is. <laughs> Ooh. How's that one? Is it really refreshing? That would be my guess. Yeah. Ooh. It's, um, honestly, the flavor is the same thing as the smell of, like, when someone next to you is opening an orange. Oh, that's amazing. That's the flavor. Yeah. Where you can, like, smell it and you're like, ah, oh. but you're just getting those, like, essential oils and stuff. Yeah. That's what it is. Cranberry is still my favorite. 
but this one's really good. I'm also not a big orange person. Orange is not one of my favorite flavors. Mm-hmm. This one's really good, though. Then that's so. that means it's really good if you're not a huge orange person. Also, super side note, but I did recently notice while I was pouring another glass that this Lambrusco is 8.5% alcohol. So it's a lot lower than wines that you would normally drink. But when you think about it, the sweeter the wine, that means the less fermentation that's happened, therefore the less alcohol. Because fermentation is yeast eating up sugars. So if you've ever wondered why white wines that are traditionally sweeter than reds are less alcoholic, that's why. It's the whole fermentation. It's all the science. I mean, it's true. I mean, you'll always... Not always. I'm sure you, like, can... If a winemaker wanted to make a sweet but high alcohol, they could purposefully do it. There are ways. There are definitely ways. But, like, generally a Moscato is going to have a lot less alcohol than an oaky Chardonnay. Yes. So that was our drink break. But now let me just get back into this case, I guess. So defense lawyer Michael Reed described the Crown's case as just absurd saying that they glossed over the killer's motive and merely pointed to an argument that had happened between Robin and David over a chainsaw. He said that the defense case would be that Robin killed the other family members before killing himself. He told the jury that Robin did this because his incestuous relationship with Laniette had come to light, that she was going around telling everybody that he had molested her and that she had come home to tell her mother about the abuse that night. So, what? The chainsaw? What? So, they had apparently had an argument over, like, David borrowing a chainsaw, and the prosecution is latching onto that as being like, see, they were arguing and fighting. And the defense is like, no? Like, literally... Lots of people argue and don't murder each other. Also, it sounds like a very typical, like, young adult and parent conversation. Like, the parent's like, you don't need to use the chainsaw. And he's like, yes, I do, Dad. I can do this. I'm 22. I need to chainsaw the trees down or something. Yeah, I know. So, yeah. Reed then said that Robin, who was a missionary and a schoolteacher, was depressed, and his life would have been ruined by these incest allegations. He said that for three years, Robin had been living in a van behind the school and was banished to a caravan behind the house when he came home for the weekend. Laniette had stayed with him in this caravan, and the defense would call startling evidence showing that Robin was the killer, including forensic evidence. Oh gosh. Really? Yeah. So finally we've got some real evidence happening. Now we've got some evidence. Reed was scathing about the police investigation, how it developed a one-track focus on David, and other leads that didn't fit that picture that David was the killer were dropped. You know, I'm kind of hating this because it's leading me even more so to believe that the incest was real and i yeah hate that i don't even have words i mean i'm glad it seems as if evidence is coming out that david is innocent when you know previously it was all circumstantial this seems like a little bit more fact and like hard evidence but this story is just getting worse and worse i know and it's 2009 i mean david's been in prison for 15 years at this point. Yeah. 
But Reed said that because of the blundering of the police investigation, some of the evidence was lost, destroyed, or never collected, including blood samples from under Robin's fingernails. Are you serious? That could have been a really key piece. Yeah, if he was just one of the victims and had, according to the prosecution, been asleep in his trailer the whole time and only come in at the last minute to pray and not seen anyone else, why is there blood under his fingernails kind of thing? But he also said that despite a neighbor telling police about the incest allegations... Laniette's diaries and letters written to her mother were destroyed, even though they may have contained allegations of incest from Laniette. Yeah, to me, the destroying of the evidence, I'm like, "Mm, no, immediately right there, I'm like, no, 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 no. You know this case is going through appeals and stuff. You don't destroy evidence. The retrial lasted three months with 130 witnesses being called by the Crown and 54 by the defense. The last evidence was presented on the 27th of May, 2009. I'm sorry, did you say 130 witnesses? Yeah, the Crown brought in 130 and the defense brought in 54. So 184 witnesses were called during this three-month trial. Where are these people coming from? Like, I don't know. I know you probably don't know the answer, but it's like, literally... For something that I said moments ago, no one actually saw. Unless these are, like, witnesses of, like, I saw him on his paper route. And everyone's saying the same thing. Like, I'm not understanding how there were that many witnesses. And I guess, yeah, there's the people that maybe have, like, historical, like, oh, this is what's going on with the family. It just seems like an excessive number. It does. I imagine a lot of them would also be, like, character witnesses. But still, that's a lot of people. It's a lot. So, the jury retired for several hours the following week to consider their verdict after hearing the closing statements from both the prosecution and defense, as well as the judge summing up of everything. They had two questions for the judge the following morning. What are the rules of reasonable doubt? And can you please clarify your statement? It must be David to the exclusion of Robin. Yeah, I'm going to need some clarity on that as well. The judge replied, in part, that they must be sure that the accused was guilty after careful consideration of all the evidence, and that the Crown case had excluded Robin as the killer. He said that reasonable doubt was an honest and reasonable uncertainty about guilt. So basically, what he's saying is that, you know, he's laying out what reasonable doubt means, Mm -hmm. and he's also saying that for... The prosecution's case to be correct, it has to only have been David. There is no scenario in their case where David and his dad murdered everyone, and then David turned on his dad. Yeah. Because they had completely taken out Robin as a suspect. At 4.45 p.m. on the afternoon of June 5th, 2009, the jury gave their verdict. They found David Bain not guilty on all five charges. Wow. And this, uh, I mean, again, originally in the 90s, this case was the biggest case in New Zealand. Now, after a 15-year-old case where a family was brutally murdered, we may have gotten the wrong guy. And this might not have only been just the wrong guy, but he was the only survivor of the family. In the late aughts, this was huge. 
Yes, I can definitely see why. I mean, this is, that is a very long time to be convicted of something that you didn't do. No, it really is. I mean, 15 years of your life spent in prison when you were only 22 when you went in. It's insane. So following his acquittal, Bain undertook a three-month European holiday that was paid for by his supporters. But ten months later, he was struggling to find work and had no money. He was suffering from the stigma that was experienced by ex-prisoners returning to the workplace. Yep. Because the thing is, he's now 37. Doesn't have a college degree because he was in school when he went to prison. He doesn't have anything on his resume at all, but he's in his late 30s. I mean, it's shitty. Yeah. In March of 2012, he was working for an engineering firm in Auckland. And then in September of 2012, he became engaged to his girlfriend, who is a Christchurch primary school teacher. And they wound up getting married in January of 2014. He and his wife had a son on December 3rd of 2014. So thankfully, he was able to start doing his best to get his life back in order. Mm -hmm. In May of 2017, he changed his name to William Davies and took the last name of his wife. And in June of 2017, the Crown began disposing of his exhibits that were used during the trial. Crown Law decided that it had no legal grounds on which to retain items that belonged to him, and his 22 caliber Winchester semi-automatic rifle and items of clothing would be returned to him. Oh, returned to him? I thought they were just going to completely dispose of it. Mm-mm. So this case is one that was very talked about in New Zealand when it happened, and also across the world, and then very talked about when the appeals were happening. But it also gained prominence recently when a 10-episode podcast covering the case, Black Hands, by Christchurch journalist Martin Van Banen was launched in July of 2017. So a lot of people who have heard of this case now have heard about it through that podcast and through others uh, inspired by that. Yeah. So, because that was how I first heard of this one was through another podcast that had done it. And I was like, oh shit, okay. Yeah. One thing I will say that I hate is that he changed his name and we know what he changed it to. So what mm-hmm. was even the point? I mean, I think a lot of it was also just put it behind him more. Yeah. Because, you know, if you follow the case, you'll know his new name. But if you don't... Because the thing is, if you were around in New Zealand in the 90s, you knew his name. Right. And, you know, now you'd only know his name if you really, like, followed it. So there's probably not going to be a lot of people who have that gut visceral reaction of, like, oh, the murderer guy. Because if you're following the case, Fair. you know that's like, oh, shit, falsely imprisoned. True. That's true. You have a very good point. Yeah. So that is the case of the Bain family murders. That's a lot. Okay, so yours was really intense, and mine I'm just following up with a lot more intensity as well. Let's do it. So the crime that I picked was the Watts family homicides. And those of y'all who have been listening to us for a while will know that I did this in a murder mini about a year ago, 
And that was right after it had happened. And a lot more has come out in this case against Chris Watts that I felt it was enough to to make this a full episode, even though there's some that y'all have already heard. I mean, a lot of us have heard a lot of this because it is recent and the media kind of went really crazy with it. But um, yeah, so the sources I, I used were Wikipedia, People Magazine, New York Times, Oxygen, and Investigation Discovery Documentary, Family Man, Family Murderer, and ID Murder Mystery. So I'm just going to cut to the chase because again, with this being very recent... Most of y'all know who did it. In mm-hmm. August 2018, Chris Watts killed his pregnant wife, Shanann, and their daughters, four-year-old Bella and three-year-old Celeste. In late 2018, he pled guilty to the murders and was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. And during all of this, the nation became obsessed with this case. It was not just because of the shocking details, but it was also because Watts initially portrayed himself as a worried husband and father concerned about his missing family. Taking a few steps back to the beginning, Christopher Lee Watts and Shanann Catherine Watts were natives of South Carolina. They met in 2010 through some mutual friends, and Chris randomly sent Shanann a Facebook friend request and she accepted it because like uh, whatever like we all do it it's a friend of a friend sure she never anticipated she would ever meet this guy but they did meet and things went really well they were married on november 3rd 2012 and they moved to colorado a couple months later after falling in love with the community of frederick which is a a town that's just like north of denver Mm -hmm. together they had two daughters Belle Marie Watts, who was born on December 17th, 2013, and their second daughter, Celeste Catherine Watts, also known as Cece, born on July 17th, 2015. I love the name Celeste. It's beautiful, isn't it? Gorgeous. Chris was employed by Anadarko Petroleum, and Shanann was an independent representative from the multi-level marketing company Lavelle, and she sold a product called Thrive, and it was this diet and weight management product system that was one, you know, you transform your life. So Shanann selling Thrive, as you can expect with a lot of different multi-level marketing companies, we've all gotten the friend request from the friend who's selling something or the message from someone yeah. selling something. Shanann put a lot of her life on social media and it wasn't just thrive related things. It was also very personal things as well about her relationship, her life. She was one of the people that, which is very normal today. You just post about everything. Yeah. Chris had actually used thrive and he lost a lot of weight, gained a lot of muscle And so he was, you know, looking pretty good. Chris and Shanann appeared to outsiders like this perfect couple, the all-American family. They have a great marriage. They have two beautiful children. And all the while, Shanann was actually 15 weeks pregnant with a son that they had planned to name Nico Lee Watts. However, on August 13th, 2018, around 1.48 a.m., Shanann, who was 34 at the time, returned home from a business trip in Arizona. Um, There was a Thrive conference and she had gone to it. And she got a ride home from her best friend and another Thrive colleague, Nicole Atkinson. 
The exact time that Shanann got home is known because she was actually seen entering her home in the footage from their home security. So they had a camera that was out on their porch. You can see her get out of the car, walk up to the door, unlock it, and go inside. Yeah. Chris was home with the girls, Bella and Celeste, and everything just, you know, seemed normal. However, later that day, you know, once the morning came, Shanann and the two children were reported missing by Nicole. And that, that was her best friend. She had become really concerned because Shanann missed a scheduled OBGYN appointment. And she was also failing to return her text messages. And this, like I was saying, is someone who's very public, posts everything, very active. Mm-hmm. And she kind of went dark. Yeah, that's that's weird. So not only did she miss that doctor's appointment, she also missed a business meeting. And so Nicole went to the Watts home around 12, 10 p.m. to just figure out what was going on. Like she was really worried mm-hmm. for a friend. She rang the doorbell, knocked on the door, and... This all went completely unanswered. So she's freaking out and she calls Chris at work. Chris said that Shanann had gone somewhere with the girls and that there was no reason to be alarmed. He told her not to call the police and he was on his way home. Nicole didn't listen. She called 911. She's like, no. Yeah. Anytime anyone says, don't call the police. Call the police. about, About like a missing persons thing. Call the police. Yeah. Because literally, that's what you're supposed to do. You're not wasting anyone's time. Call the police. Officers arrived to conduct a welfare check at about 1.40 p.m. The officers come up, they knock on the door, they're not getting a response. And because they have no reason to, they cannot forcibly enter the home. So they wait for Watts to come home. Chris Watts arrived at about 2 p.m., so just 20 minutes later after the officers arrived. He started talking to the officers and they discussed different ways to locate his family. He let him in the home. They had permission to search the house, and it appeared the house was completely empty. There was no one there. While they were inside, the officers discovered Shanann's purse, phone, wedding ring, and keys, and her car with her children's car seats was still at the house. It was in the garage. Inside her purse was her medication, which she was required to take daily, um, because when she was 26 years old, she was diagnosed with lupus. And she's also pregnant. So Nicole seeing like not only is her purse there, her car's there, you know, she's not going to take the girl somewhere without her car. She's not going to leave without her medication. Nicole's like freaking out. And the suitcase that she had taken with her on her work trip to Arizona was still there in the home, completely packed. So she hadn't even unpacked it, which, you know, she got home real late. So maybe she didn't that night, but... Something happened either that night or that morning. Which, I mean, to be fair, sometimes I don't unpack for days. We were at home, what, a few weeks ago? Bag's still over here, unpacked. But Oh, I mean, same. But that's she doesn't seem like the type of person. Granted, this is just me guessing. But I get, like, strong type A vibes from her. And I just can't see her. This is weird. It is. It is. And when officers got to the master bedroom, the sheets had been stripped from the bed and the fitted sheet was completely missing. Chris then said he found her wedding ring on the nightstand and that there was not a note next to it. So police are just kind of noticing all of these really important items that are still in the house. And so they kind of 
are like, okay, Chris, like, let's, we're gonna ask you some questions. They start pressing him for more information on their relationship and start probing, like, maybe, you know, did, did Shanann leave you? Like, what's going on? But it's also extremely alarming to them that she went off the grid. I mean, she didn't tell anyone anything. Yeah. Because to me, if she was going to, you know, let's say worst case scenario, she's in like an abusive relationship and she's going to take the kids and leave while he's at work, she would have brought her purse. You know, I could even see her leaving her phone if she could think that he could track her somehow. But there's no way she's going to leave her medication and her purse or the kid's car seat. That's what I'm thinking, too. Again, maybe even in a very, you know, he's tracking me kind of mind. Maybe she thinks he has a tracker on the car. But she's still going to take those car seats and put them in an Uber. Mm -hmm. Or, honestly, she would probably just call Nicole, is what it sounds like. I know. And be like, I need you to get me out of this. Like, so even just the idea of her taking the kids and leaving him doesn't... Yeah. It doesn't answer no, all the questions. I, yeah. And I'm going to take a hot second break from this because I feel like everything is about to get a lot darker. It is. And I just finished the Clementine Hibiscus, which was a bomb as fuck. Um, I mean, it was good. It was very refreshing, very orangey. Again, I got a lot of the... It's going to sound weird, but like if you lick an orange peel... How it's not sweet, but it is orangey. Yeah. Like the, um... I mean, it's the zest. The, I mean, the, yeah, the zest. There's the word. I was like, I don't know, the shit you put in things. <laughs> it's the orange zest. The zest. But now I'm going to pivot to my favorite flavor of anything in the world, which is grapefruit. I also think this is my favorite can because it's pink. And you know I love pink. Yeah. But, again, like... So they're different colors and the ingredients at the top. So this one has a grapefruit and some sliced grapefruits. The clementine hibiscus has two sliced clementines and a hibiscus flower. Oh, that one's cute. I just think that's really it cool. It is. It's it's the but little details. This one smells so good. Also, the cans are like printed on the can. They're not sleeved. Oh, my favorite. So I love when it's printed on just, the aluminum. They look so clean. Mm-hmm. It does look cleaner. So try the grapefruit. What is it like? Oh, yeah. That's the best one. Grapefruit is the best one, hands down. I knew you would think that. I say, honestly, grapefruit, cranberry, tangerine, and then the pear elderflower at the bottom. Really? I like, the. I think it's because I like the pear elderflower. It's good, but it's not a very strong flavor. Elderflower is a, a subtle flavor for sure. And so is pear. Also, I'm not a big pear person, unless it's like a fresh pear, then honestly, fresh fruit in general. But anyway, the grapefruit one is fantastic. This would be, if you were feeling like going crazy, this would be a great mixer for like a shot of deep eddy grapefruit. So grapefruit on grapefruit. Yeah. (laughs) So it's good that you had this little tangent because you're right, it is about to get very dark. And speaking of details... I'm about to jump into a lot more than you would ever want to know about this case. Yay. So there's all this commotion happening at the Watts house. Like there's officers there. Like Chris came home in the middle of the day. One of Watts' neighbors approached a police officer and he says he has something that could be some pretty critical evidence. 
he happens to have his own security camera system on the outside of his house, and it records 24-7. And and he said that in one of his cameras, you can see the Watts driveway, just because of the way it's faced. You see, like, part of his home, but you see the Watts driveway. Mm -hmm. So the police officers and Chris Watts go over to his neighbor's house to watch the video of the surveillance. So he pulls up the video at about 5.30, 5.45 a.m., and you can see Chris's truck is backed partially into his garage with the bed inside the garage and the front cab of the truck is still in the driveway. There's actual footage of this if you want to see it, but you can see that Chris, like, he starts to get really chatty and he's like, yeah, people are stealing shit out of my truck. And so now I have to like pull it into the garage to put my stuff in. And so you can see him like fidgeting. He's putting his hands on his head. And the video actually doesn't show any definitive evidence of what's going on. You can't see a person. You literally the whole time just see the truck backed halfway in. So Watts and most of the officers leave the home. And the neighbor privately pulls one of the officers aside and he says, you know, something's off about Chris. He's never this fidgety. Like that behavior you just saw, that's not Chris. He doesn't act like that. Mm -hmm. So I didn't know you meant there was footage of him reacting to seeing the truck footage. Because I was just like, oh, I wonder if I could see the truck video. And then it's like, oh, a 16-minute raw video of Chris Watts reacts to neighbor's surveillance footage. So if you're at all interested in this case, that documentary I watched on ID, it's 45 minutes. It's mostly footage because the officers wear cameras on there, like, right here. Oh, yeah. I... So it's the it, everything. You, you see... Him throughout the entire thing. It's one of those documentaries that's not... There are a couple reenactments, but for the most part, it's raw footage and people talking about it. And you see his reactions. And literally, I watch this video and he's like, he's not even watching the footage. Because he is terrified of what's... And you'll hear later what he was doing, but you can kind of assume. It's creepy. And like, the conversation, the officer and the neighbor, when the neighbor's like... He's never been that fidgety. That's on camera. I watched it. Like, all of the things that I'm talking about, like the footage of Shanann coming home, I saw it. The footage of, uh, or like the 911 call when Nicole calls the police. Like, I heard all of that. You can see Chris's reactions when they're over at the neighbor's house. And like, seeing this reality, it just, it brings this into such realism because you're actually seeing it happen it's not a reenactment like a lot of documentaries yeah. do well and i bet that like body cam footage is gonna change documentaries forever because there's not gonna be a need for reenactments in like police involved things when you have the body cam footage and just that seeing actually chris reacting to this versus seeing a reenactment that maybe it has better angles, but you know it's actors. God, that's crazy. It really is. And that's a really good point that I've never thought of, of how documentaries are changing. Because there's more footage of all the things going on. I mean, body cams, dash yeah. cams, we're getting exposure. Yeah. Well, and also, we've talked about this before, witnesses in their cell phones. 
capturing things. Like, we're going to have more footage of incidents than we've ever had before. And not only does that change investigations and trials, but it also changes when something is put into documentary form. Mm -hmm. You can see it. Well, and I feel like previously, you know, if you saw raw video of what's happening, it was either from, like, a building security camera. So it's not great quality or from like a police officer's car dash cam where it's, you know, just very specific and obviously something already happened for the police to be there kind of thing. After the neighbor pulled the officer aside and told him this, the police started investigating Chris and Shanann's relationship. They interviewed Shanann's friends and they were looking through a lot of these social posts that Shanann had posted. So while Chris and Shanann's lives on social looked pretty perfect, her friends told a very different story. Right before this happened in the summer, Shanann had taken the girls with her to North Carolina for five weeks without Chris. Oh, wow. Chris is then, there's some text messages that come up and Chris is saying he doesn't want a third child, two's enough, like they don't need a third kid. And also, while Shanann was in Arizona on her work trip, she noticed a charge on their credit card. It was from a restaurant and it just looked like it was for a lot more money than one person would spend. And so she immediately assumed that he was having an affair and she confronted him and he he denied it. He just said he, you know, went to a ball game, then he went to this restaurant, got some drinks, got some food, like just, you know, spent the money. The next day, August 14th, Shanann and the girls are still missing and the FBI and the Colorado Bureau of Investigation joined the investigation. Chris gave an interview to a Denver station, KMGH-TV outside his house and in this news footage which you can very easily find online he's pleading for his family's return all the while investigators with cadaver and search dogs can be heard on the property in the background during the interview and you know even though the words that chris is saying he's begging you know if someone knows where they are like please return them please bring them home The way he is saying it seems like very cold and there's not a lot of emotion there. And so the investigators and the journalists, they were on alert. Well, I remember seeing this news footage and just it was one of those things that at the time, not really being able to tell what was wrong, but I was like, something's not right. Like this feels wrong weird and wrong well and we've talked about it before how you can't really judge someone's initial reactions but he just seems like like his eyes are darting around he's not looking at the camera he sounds very scripted and not in a oh i'm nervous to do this so they had to give me lines it it's off it's very off yeah and while that's i mean that's true we've brought it up and that's a good point that you can't judge another person's grief especially so close to an incident happening, but you still can't ignore the red flags going off. Right. While the dogs were searching, they ended up finding one of the missing sheets in the kitchen trash can from the master bedroom. After this news report was aired, police received a tip from someone named Nicole Kessinger. She admitted that she and Watts had started hanging out in June 
And he told her that he had two kids and that he was in the midst of separating from his wife. Police ended up finding emails where the two of them were conversing back and forth. They were sharing photos together. They were having a full-blown relationship. Nicole was even helping Chris find an apartment for him and the girls for when their divorce, you know, his divorce with his wife was finalized. So as it turns out, Shanann was right about the credit card charge. It was a date. Chris was having an affair. Nicole told police that when she found out that Chris's wife and children were missing, she was really concerned. And like, she told them, she's like, I'm really concerned about their safety. I don't know what's going on. Because she had just found out that he'd been lying to her. And so she's like, no. And I I will say, I love that she came forward. She didn't let the embarrassment of like, oh my god, that's my boyfriend. I didn't know any of this. Mm -hmm. She didn't let that keep her from confronting police. She was like, I'm calling the police immediately. Yeah. The fact that she is just going to not take that shame of being like, oh, everyone will know I'm this other woman and all that. Being like, no, this shit fucked up and this shit is a lot bigger than that. Yeah. And at this time, they're missing and and her coming forward could save them. So she's like, yep, I'm saying something. Yeah. So after this, police brought Chris in for a polygraph test and he failed. On August 15th, so two days after Shanann and the girls were reported missing, Watts was arrested. Over these two days, evidence against him had been building up. His company truck actually had a GPS, and so police pulled the data and knew that he had not gone to work that day. So the police were interrogating him, and at that same time, a separate police team was at an oil site that the GPS data had led them to, And at that site, they found another of the bedsheets that had been missing. And they sent that information, they took drone photos, and sent them to the officers who were interrogating Chris. So the officers know where that GPS led, what was found, while they're interrogating him. Chris doesn't know this, though. So that's where he was coming back from when Nicole was like, Chris, I'm worried. And he's like, hey, I'll come home from work. He's not coming home from work. He's coming from home from that oil site. Yep. So after hours of interrogation, it did come out with the officers that Watts was having an affair, but the agents already knew that because Nicole had come to them. So they continued to, to push during this interrogation. They mentioned that he seemed only upset about his wife and that he had not even mentioned anything about the fact that his kids are missing. And so they're pushing him, they're trying to get him to crack, and Chris is just saying that this affair made him realize that he did not want to be in this marriage any longer, and he asked for a separation from Shanann. At this moment during the interrogation, he asks to talk to his father. The agents are like, sure, they let his dad in the room, and the investigators leave, but they know this is all still being recorded. So they're behind, like, the mirrored wall two-way mirror and chris can be seen on video talking to his dad and he says that he doesn't want to protect shanann anymore he ends up telling authorities that shanann had strangled the children in response to his request for a separation he said he saw shanann strangling celeste on the baby monitor and that he could see bella laying in her bed and she appeared blue 
After he saw that, Chris like went into this fit of rage, goes in the room, strangles Shanann, and then he took their three bodies to a remote oil storage site where he worked, and that was that. Upon his arrest, he was fired from his job. They completely let him go. Like, obviously, there's the connection with the oil sites. They're like, nope. Based on this confession by Watts, on August 16th, he led agents to the bodies of his family, which were located by the authorities on the property of Watts' former employer, Anadarko Petroleum. Shanann was the first body found. She was buried in a shallow grave. And then the lengthy process and very graphic process began to recover the girls' bodies. They had been found hidden in two of the separate oil tanks. Those oil tanks, you've seen photos of stuff like that. They're huge. Yeah. And so there were multiple recovery agents that were having to go in there. Some had to be drained. I mean, this is like a gigantic tank, and they're trying to find a small girl's body in two of them. In November, Chris pleaded guilty to nine criminal counts, including the murder, the unlawful termination of a pregnancy, and tampering with the dead body. This was really interesting that he accepted this plea deal, because as you remember, what Chris had confessed to all along is that he killed Shanann because she killed the girls. But in this plea, he was admitting to all of the killing. Oh, The death penalty was not put forward by the district attorney on the request of Shanann's family. They said they did not wish for any further deaths. They did not want to be responsible for the death penalty. And so Chris was sentenced later that month to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Even though that he was sentenced to life, some people felt a bit of a disappointment because he still had said nothing. And like during his sentencing hearing... When the judge asked if he had a statement, he said no. And so there's still so many questions about what happened. Yeah. In February 2019, Chris's story changed further, and he confessed the truth. He said that on that night, he heard Shanann come home, and she gets into bed, and she's kind of like moving around, and he moves over, and the two of them end up having sex. Then, a couple of hours later... They're awake again, and they end up having this very emotional conversation where he admitted to her that he wanted to leave the marriage. And so, like, when he's telling the officers that are, like, this is, like, his uh, prison interview with the officers. And so Chris says when he told Shanann that he wanted to end their marriage, she said she knew there was someone else. And he, like, gets angry, and he kind of, like, gets on top of her. And and she's just like, you are never going to see the children again. And so he strangles her. He detailed how she didn't fight back, and he thought that she may even have been praying while he, like, chokes the life out of her. He said he came up with the idea to blame Shanann for the girl's deaths during his original interrogation by the police. The police brought up the possibility that Shanann might have killed the girls, and he just, like, went with it. He was like, yeah, actually, I saw her kill them on the baby monitor, and so that's why I strangled her. But during this interview, he confessed that his daughters were still alive when he put his wife's body in his truck, and he put the girls in the back seat, drove them all to the oil field, the one where the bodies were eventually found. Yeah. He revealed that he killed his family over a longer period of time in August than was previously reported, 
and he painted a very disturbing picture of his daughter's final moments. He said, you know, after he strangled Shanann, that his four-year-old daughter, Bella, witnessed him dragging the body down the stairs as he was taking it to put in the truck. She then said, what's wrong with mommy? And she's kind of crying because this doesn't feel right to her. Yeah. Kristen loads Bella and Celeste into the backseat of his truck with their mother's body nearby on the floorboard. And he drove them about the 45-minute drive to the oil field. When he got there, he said he used a blanket to smother Celeste, who was nicknamed Cece, and dropped her into an oil tank, all while Bella watched. And according to Chris's account, Bella then asked him, is the same thing going to happen to me as Cece? He doesn't say anything. He says he can't remember if he responded. He doesn't know if he said nothing. He doesn't know if he says yes, like a monster. And he ends up smothering Bella with the same blanket and placed her in the second oil tank. I don't even know how to respond. I mean, this this revelation that the girls died after this very prolonged episode that ended at the oil site rather than at the home. This was like the biggest turn in, in Chris's story, especially coming from a man who originally acted like he had no idea where his family was. And was begging yeah. for their return. Yeah. So Watts told investigators that he finally told this full story because he wanted Shanann's family to have closure. So that is the extremely tragic case of the Watts family murders. And like I said, I know I've already covered this in a murder mini, but with how much has come out since then, this was absolutely a case that deserved um, a second look and and a follow-up. And it's one of the most tragic things I feel like I've ever heard of because I just know it like literally just happened like last year. Like that's what is, yeah. it, this is a few months old and who knows what else is going to come out about this and what, and what yeah. other stories he's going to tell. Um, I will say, although him saying all of this, I'm like, Yep, you finally were getting that off your chest because you're in jail for the rest of your life. So you may as well get the truth out. Why hide it? And with that, I think it's time we jump into postmortem. Yes. So I think it's interesting. We have the same topic and we both had cases that I think exemplified this topic. But in a way, our cases were opposite. What do you mean? Well, my case was one that instantly david was looked at as the killer and was wrongfully convicted and thankfully after years in the system was freed whereas in your case chris was initially looked at as just this grieving husband and father and as you know another victim of the case right. and then as more information came out it turns out he was far from a victim. He was the perpetrator of all of this. Right. Well, and I will say one difference for sure was that yours happened over a long span of time while mine was a matter of days, which is a very interesting thing yeah. when you think of how much media gripped onto this one. Media gripped onto yours as well with like immediate guilt. And with mine, it was like, oh my yeah. god, it's a grieving father. And then literally, like, 24 hours later, it's like, oh my god, he killed his family? Oh my god, he's arrested. Oh my god, this. Oh my god, he actually did it. Like, it, 
Because when you yeah. think about it, we know cases are generally, like, they take a while for evidence to build up mm-hmm. and things to happen. This happened in August, and by November, he was convicted to life in prison. So, this is a quick I mean, turnaround. We, you've been able to pretty succinctly sum up this case, and while there may be more things to come about in the future, as there are with many cases, it hasn't even been a year at this point. No. And the case is pretty closed. Not just for closed on like a legal and police standpoint, but closed in like a... What happened? The public knows now. Yeah. Like there's not that many like lingering questions. I mean, there and... there is still the big lingering question of why. Because if he was yeah. done with his marriage, why didn't he just leave her and his girls and have a life with Nicole, like he had told her he was doing. Like, you don't have to kill your family. You don't have to be a family annihilator to move on with your life and have another marriage. And it's just, that's one of those things where it's like, when I talked about these family annihilators, how they're like these quiet men who are very passive, who all of a sudden something happens and they, they snap, for lack of a better word. That's Chris to a T. Yeah, but I will say the the question of there's still the why to that extent, I feel like that's a question with, with almost any murder. True. You know, you, you can ask, oh, so-and-so already gave you their wallet, why did you need to shoot them afterwards? Or, you know, I feel like the, the why did it have to become murder is one that... It's a forever why. Almost can never be answered. Right. So I'm, I think... Just the intensity, the brutality, and the senselessness, just all of it. I think your case very much was the more intense one. Yeah. And while yours dealt with wrongful conviction, potential incest, mine having the deaths of these two girls and their unborn brother, those Mm -hmm. are... And Bella watching everything that happened to Cece, like... Absolutely not. Yeah. This is beyond anything that anyone should ever have to comprehend. And I I will say I'm thankful for the fact that they were so young and couldn't grasp the reality of what they were actually seeing. They knew it was bad. Yeah. They knew that something happened to mommy. They knew something happened to their sister. But they're not yet developed enough to completely grasp it. But they, yeah. they knew I something mean, was it's... wrong. And that's bad enough. It's awful. It's awful, but at least she was four and not 12. Right. God. So, so. I totally agree with you. Um, mine was really intense. So you can pick our topic for next week's episode. Um, maybe don't make it like as heavy. Yeah. I can't promise anything at this Because they're point. all heavy. It's murder. It's all heavy. Yeah. Honestly, the, the secret subtitle of our podcast is it's all heavy. it's all heavy blood and wine a true crime podcast it's all heavy so be sure to hop on over to apple Podcasts. please rate and review us we really appreciate you guys giving us those five stars letting us know what you think spreading the word um the more you review us the more we're going to be on lists and whatnot so other people can see us and enjoy us just like you are Also, make sure to like and follow us on social media. 
We are on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. That will also be where you can check out our First Leaf page. You can hit that link. Make sure to enter Blood and Wine at checkout, and you'll get free shipping on all of your wine shipments for an entire year. Yes. With that, this is Blood and Wine signing off. XOXO. Bye, you guys. Bye.